Thank you very much, and it, it's a great privilege to be here to speak to you uh, on this subject, and in what I know is a particularly busy time just before you're about to go out bush. So uh, the slide up there says adolescent learning strategies. I guess that's, uh, that's largely because of my background uh, in training and instruction, but it could just as easily be adolescent leadership strategies. Um, I am not a psych. I'm not an education corps officer, I'm an armoured corps officer by background, so most of my experience has been uh, in my early regimental life, which was the 2nd Cavalry Regiment and B Squadron 3-4 Cav. Uh, I also had a fair amount of experience as an instructor at Royal Military College Dunfroon, where I was a captain instructor of uh, you know, tactics, leadership and field training. I went back there later on as after Staff College as the senior instructor of Warfighting Wing officer commanding field training, uh, and eventually the deputy chief instructor. So I'd had a reasonable amount of experience um, as a military instructor in an army context. In 2011, I was selected to be uh, the commanding officer of the Australian Defence Force Academy. And I am not an ADFA graduate. I went straight from high school to Duntroon, and then on to you know, being a cavalry troop leader. So my posting to ADFA as the CO was my first posting to the Australian Defence Force Academy. And when I got there, I noticed something very different about all of the trainees at, at ADFA. Um, issues with integrity, so they would lie directly to your face. Did you do this? No, sir. I saw you doing it. No, sir. I've got CCTV of you doing it. My sergeant told me to. Um, you know, we, and I couldn't reconcile that with my experience having dealt with uh, trainees at um, Dunfroon, where integrity is sacrosanct. A lot of behavioural problems, like really uh, low-level, unacceptable behaviour, misadventure-type things, uh, a significant lack of motivation, particularly in second year, that had been highlighted by the previous reviews into ADFA, the Grey Review, the CAFE Review, uh, and I think also mentioned in the Broderick Review. So. Um, you know, this, this lack of motivation and where that comes from. So I, I started trying to understand what was going on and why they were different. A lot of questions in the previous reviews into ADFA had, had put the problem at culture. You know, it's a problem with the culture. Somehow, you know, we were taking the best and brightest young Australians and then in just a few short weeks, we were indoctrinating them with this military culture that was no good. Um, and, and, and it was our fault, we'd done it to them. Um, as I said, I'm not a psych, I'm not an education corps officer, so I used the tools available to me as an armoured corps officer. I started the MAP and I started doing intelligence preparation in the battle space. I figured if I could understand my enemy, the teenage brain, then I could apply the tenets of manoeuvre theory to disrupt and dislocate their bad behaviour. So that's what I set out to do. I started looking into the cognitive neuroscience. So how the brain grows, develops and functions under certain environmental conditions and when doing certain things. And, uh, and I also started to look into the educational psychology, how people learn and what motivates them to learn. None of what I'm gonna talk about today in any way excuses unacceptable behavior. Unacceptable behavior is unacceptable. The stuff that I'm gonna talk about does not give people a get out of jail free card to say, oh, it wasn't their fault because they were an adolescent. Um, there is, 
however, a degree of diminished culpability for some of the things they do based on environmental conditions. So what I'm gonna hopefully do for you today is explain unacceptable behaviour through the context of an adolescent mind and describe certain conditions, environmental conditions, that we can have a large part in controlling as leaders that will influence the decisions that they make um, and diminish the risk of them doing something bad and inconsistent with ADS values. Um, you know, in this regard, it's a little bit like running a counterinsurgency. If you understand the root causes of conflict, you've got a better chance of putting uh, stability operations in place that are gonna be effective. There's a difference between training and education. So we train for certainty. Now, when somebody tells you to do a right turn on the drill square, there's not a lot of cognitive process involved. You turn 90 degrees right, lift your left foot 15 centimetres, bring it back into the ground. There's no ethical situation there, there's no debate. It, we train for certainty. Something happens, we follow up with an action. We do training very, very well. We educate people, however, for uncertainty. We educate people to make difficult decisions in complex environments, you know, with, with you know, ethical scenarios and all sorts of things. So um, this presentation I'm gonna give you today is more focused on that education and decision-making in complexity uh, and behaviour modification than it is about training. Why do I use the term adolescence? So your brain has reached um, its full adult size by the time you're 12. So it's not gonna get any bigger. And we normally associate the idea of adolescence with sexual maturity. So from the onset of puberty until you finish growing, you know, around about 17, 18 years of age. So we know the brain doesn't get any bigger by the time you're 12. But there are a whole bunch of changes that continue to occur inside the brain and how it's wired that continue up until about the age of 25. So it is still growing, it is still maturing, it is still changing until you're about 25 years of age. Um, and because of that reason, it is still you know, adolescent. Interestingly enough, the World Health Organization is increasingly using the term youth to describe this demographic of 15 to 25 year olds, recognising that there is something about that demographic that is unique and makes them different from children and different from adults. 38% of Forces Command's CERCAT 7 workforce is 25 years of age or younger. And that includes a significant amount of our junior leaders at corporal and lieutenant level. Right, so the brain science. I hope this, this is gonna build on some of the stuff that you he heard uh, yesterday. So one of the first things that you need to understand is the process of myelination. Myelination is the coding of the neurons between axons with a glial cell. It's a fatty cell, and because it's fatty, it looks white. So if you've ever heard the brain referred to as gray matter and white matter, it is this process of myelination that creates white matter. Once a neural pathway has finished myelination, the passage of information across that pathway is accelerated by 6,000 to 9,000 times faster. So in essence, 
this process of myelination in the brain takes the brain from operating at dial-up speed and puts it on the broadband network. I'm comfortable that most people in the audience here remember what dial-up speed is. Um, yesterday's audience, or the audience before was a little bit different. So it increases the bandwidth, right? The, the passage of information. This process of myelination starts very young. When you're still in utero, the brain is starting the myelination process. And it starts in the back of the brain, in the occipital nerves, where we process sight, and it cascades forward slowly in an inverted U, finishing up in the prefrontal cortex by about the time you're 25 years of age. The prefrontal cortex, the last part of the brain to get myelinated, is your executive decision making. So it's the part of the brain where you conduct planning, which is the ability to understand second and third order effects. Judgment, impulse control, empathy, the ability to view a situation from someone else's perspective other than your own. All of these are products of the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is functional. If it wasn't functional, you'd be sort of a chimp or a lizard, righto? Prefrontal cortex works, but it just can't communicate with the brain as fast as some other parts up until about 25 years of age. So what does that mean? Throughout this presentation, I'll talk about the neuroscience, I'll then talk about what that means for our young people that we're trying to lead, and then I'll go into the strategies that we need to implement based on that knowledge. So what, we look at the young thing, the, the stupid things that young people do, and often say to ourselves, what were you thinking? The honest answer is they weren't. They weren't thinking. They weren't considering the consequences or the second and third order effects, because that's a product of the prefrontal cortex. So they're wrapped up in the excitement of the moment. They are literally living in the moment that they're experiencing right now without any thought of what might go wrong or what could happen. They can come across as being self-centered and selfish. Uh, it's all about them. They are the center of the universe. Everyone else is just another player on the stage. In this regard, bullies do not see uh, the victim's point of view. They find the act of bullying empowering um, and they don't give consideration to their victim because that's a product of empathy. And consequence-based punishment is not the best behaviour modification strategy for a group of people who don't consider consequence. And often, when you punish them for the things they do wrong, they see it as being unfair. You know, what do you mean? How can you see this as, I told you, here are the rules, and if you break these rules, you'll be punished. In their mind, they're thinking, had I thought about that at the time and still decided to do it, then it would be fair that you punish me. But I didn't think about it. This is just an accident. So what does that mean? in terms of potential strategies. In lectures about ethics uh, and values, you need to structure those lessons to be from their own perspective, not how it feels to be someone else. So when we were doing this at ADFA, it was not long after the Skype scandal, 
which occurred in 2011 in my first year as a CO. Uh, and then the Broderick Review that flowed out of it made a recommendation about bringing in an expert facilitator to deliver sexual ethics. Yeah, when that facilitator first came in, she spoke to a class of, of about 200 people and she asked them to empathise. She said, I want you to think about how it feels to be a young lady here at ADFA uh, in a male-dominated environment and imagine that you know, you've, you've paired up with one of your colleagues who you like and you've had a sexual experience that is perhaps one of your first um, and then you find out the knowledge of that sexual experience is being shared around all your colleagues via social media the next day. How would that make you feel? And when she looked to the audience for engagement throughout the delivery of her presentation, she was not getting any feedback. She wasn't getting, her levels of engagement were very low. And I think, and I got the perception that she was using that to reinforce her bias and her belief that they were bad people. They were bad people and somehow defence had done it to them. And I asked uh, after that experience if I could have a go that with the next class that came in after lunch. And I just, I pitched the learning from a different perspective, from a different angle. I didn't ask, I didn't appeal to their sense of empathy. I described the story from the you know, young man's point of view. I said, there's a young lady here at ADFA who you like, and you're pretty, pretty sure she likes you, and you, you know, build up the courage and ask her out. You're a bit nervous, and she says yes. So you agree to meet out in town for dinner. Um, you have a lovely meal. It's a little bit awkward to begin with, um, but you have a couple of drinks, and she has a couple of drinks, and then you become a comedian, and she's laughing at all your jokes. Everything's going really, really well, and you move round the corner to Mooseheads. Uh, and at Mooseheads, you know, you buy some more drinks. Uh, eventually, you've both had enough to drink uh, to bust out your inner group and you hit the dance floor and things are going great. After a few hours, around about midnight, you move around the corner to ICBM and continue drinking. And you're still buying the drinks because uh, you're a gentleman and that's what your dad told you to do. You know, pay for the meal, buy the drinks. Um, you've had a fair amount by this stage and the dancing's getting a bit grindy on the dance floor, a little bit exciting, and she whispers into your ear, let's go back to the academy. You grab her hand, you race out of there at a million miles an hour, jump into a taxi, fly back to ADFA and have a wild night of sex. The next day, she wakes up and says to you, you plied me with alcohol, you removed my ability to provide consent, and you raped me. You're going to jail, are there any questions? Sir, sir, are you saying that if this happens and that happens and then she drinks the drinks, I didn't make it, and then I'm going to jail for rape? Yes, mate. Any other questions? Sir! And what happened is the level of engagement went up through the roof. And the reason was I hadn't asked them to empathise. I was telling the story from their own perspective um, and what it meant to them as a self-centred, little bit selfish adolescent who was immature. Now, she, she again... The expert facilitator used that interaction to reinforce her bias that they were bad people because they were only self-interested and somehow we in defence had done it to them. I said, they're not bad, they're just immature. This is the way their brains are wired. So in a utopian world, they'd be different, but they're not. This is the reality of their biology and if you want to get this learning outcome across, uh, this, is, this is the way to do it. Now, I'm not saying they can't empathise, 
Uh, they can, but you've got to build a mechanism that allows them to do that, and storytelling story is a really powerful way of doing that. Um, so I'll make the other point here, a 40-minute period on rules or expected behaviour in and of itself is not going to be enough to moderate that behaviour. Of course, it's important to tell them what we expect of them, what are defence values, what are the rules, uh, what do routine orders say and what do they need to obey. But just doing that is not going to be enough to moderate their behaviour and I will keep coming back to this point as I go through more of the brain science. The next thing you need to know about is the amygdala. So the brain has two decision-making computers, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. We just talked about the prefrontal cortex. Um, all sensory input except smell, but what you see, taste, touch and hear all goes into the thalamus first for, before being sent to the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala at the same time. The reason sensory input is sent to the amygdala is for a threat detection. And if the amygdala detects a threat, then through the hypothalamus, it triggers the body's fight, flight or freeze response. I spoke about this process of myelination starting in the back of the brain and cascading forward. Well, the amygdala gets hooked up to the broadband network around about the onset of puberty. So at the same time, the body is being flooded with the hormones associated with sexual maturity, testosterone and oestrogen, it says, you know what would be a great idea? I'm going to hook the brain's emotional centre up to the broadband network while the executive control is still running at dial-up speed. So what? We heard about this yesterday, the amygdala hijack. Uh, the amygdala is fully myelinated and it can send and receive signals 6,000 to 9,000 times faster than the prefrontal cortex. So it can hijack decision-making away from the, pre from the prefrontal cortex, particularly with adolescence when there is emotion involved. So everyone can experience this amygdala hijack. It's, it's our body's um, survival mechanism. But in adolescence, it's significantly um, exaggerated because of this process of myelination. So whenever there's any emotion involved with adolescence, whether it's happiness, sadness, anger, any one of those things, jealousy, will result in a high likelihood of this amygdala hijack. Learning is reduced in periods of high stress. So if you create this stressful environment or a fearful environment, you put them into the amygdala mode and the amygdala is just trying to fight or, or run away. It's not actually learning or thinking about it. There's no constructivist learning, drawing upon different ideals. It just goes into lizard brain mode. So when we get back to this thing that I said about ADFA, you know, where the trainees would lie to your face, my first perception, having come from Duntroon, is that they're out of step with defence's values. If they can't be trusted with the truth, they can't be trusted with soldiers' lives, they cannot be trusted with national secrets, and they cannot be trusted with millions of dollars worth of equipment. We need to kick them out. But I now know, based on this research, that it was a fear response. Now, when you stand in front of a trainee in your uniform with all your trappings of power and authority 
your rank, your ribbons, your, everything from your name tag to your lanyard, and you stand in front of them and say, did you do this? Their prefrontal cortex is going, honesty is the best policy. And the amygdala is saying, bullshit, pop smoke, maneuver for a better position. This is no good. There is a big threat here. Get out of the way. So, if you want rational thought and learning, you need to, you need to remove that threat. So when I think about how I was taught tactics when I was going through Royal Military College Duntree, I'd be walking through the jungle with 30 of my close mates, a shot would ring out somewhere to the front, we'd all run down, crawl, observe, aim, fire, lying on my guts, I could see about two metres in any given direction in the jungle, my 30 mates would start calling in completely contradictory information about what was going on, and there'd be a captain standing over the top of me, saying, you've got enemy over there, you've got wounded over there, you're starting to receive mortars, what are you going to do, platoon commander? If it's all right with you, sir, I'll sit here and shit myself. <laughs> you know, complete amygdala hijack. And I saw this over and over and over again as a captain instructor at Dunfroon myself. And you would see those that would conduct an attack with their amygdala. Like a whole bunch of aggression, a lot of swear, swear words, huge amounts of enthusiasm directly into the enemy's engagement area. You know, an attack being run by the amygdala. No thought, plenty of aggression, everyone would die. So what do you do? How do you change that? You need to, you need to get it out of the amygdala and you need to re-engage the prefrontal cortex. And you do that by removing the threat. So the alternate approach is to stand over that person and say, don't worry about that right now. Pull out your CMAP. Bring it out. Get your Buick 2 out. CMAP, right. Enemy. What do you actually know, really, about the enemy? Well, he's somewhere over there, sir. Yeah, that's about as much as you know. Over there somewhere. Ground. What do you know about the ground? Where are you? I am here. Okay, so if you are there, where do you think the enemy would be relative to your position? Oh, probably on that high ground. You'd have commanding fields of fire. Yeah, excellent. Good planning assumption. So if you're here and the enemy's there, how can you use the ground to manoeuvre yourself into a position of advantage? I could fall back through this dead ground, come around, do a right flanking attack with fire support from here. Yep, good, excellent, righto. Let's get some orders in place that make that happen. So by removing the threat, by, by calming the situation down and getting rid of the emotion, you can re-engage the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex will start to learn. Um, if you're in a situation where you need the truth, remove the threat. And I, once I started to realise this, um, I, I used this to no end at ADVA. I can't remember how many times I'd apply this strategy with the trainees. Um, did you do this? No, sir. I said, look, I'm not going to punish you. This is not about punishment. This is about training. I am not going to charge you. I'm not going to give you extras or show parades. Uh, you have just demonstrated something that is incorrect. For me to make you an officer, I need to show you what correct looks like and get you from what is incorrect to what is right. The first step in that process is you accepting that what you did was wrong. If you can demonstrate to me that you can get from wrong to right, then you're telling me you can be trained. And if you can be trained, I can make you an officer. But if you can't accept the mistake that you made, then you're telling me you can't be trained 
in which case you can't be an officer and our paths are going to separate very quickly. So, let's go back to the start and talk about what you did. Yes, sir, that's, that's what I did. Okay. So the moment the threat was gone with this demographic, you know, the level of engagement went up, the learning started. And I used that. We started the question, you know, the military, the quality of the military questioning technique. You know, question, pause, nominate. Oh, I was following along, it was really interesting, and then he pointed at me with a choppy hand of death and my head went empty. I don't even know where I am anymore. You know, we've probably all experienced that same thing. This, that question, pause, nominate, you know, designed to make sure everyone's engaged and no one's fallen asleep, is good if you're asking people to give you back rote, learned information. You know, what's the weight of a stire loaded? Oh, I don't know, I've forgotten. Um, but when you're asking people to do constructivist learning, to draw upon multiple ideas and put it into, into new learning and new concepts, this doesn't work because it creates an amygdala response, puts you, you know, into that hijack mode and you can't engage the prefrontal cortex. So when we realise that, and we look at what we're doing at Adri, you know, we're, we're training officers to problem solve, we're doing university degrees, we wanted them to be using their prefrontal cortex and to be laying down new neural pathways. So we changed it and we'd ask them, we'd pose the question to the audience, we'd ask them to discuss it in their small groups and then we'd ask someone in the small group for their answer. What did your group think? Giving young people the ability to say, well, we thought instead of I thought is much less confronting um, and again, levels of engagement went up. The next part of the brain you need to know about is the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is part of the brain's pleasure response and it releases dopamine in response to reward stimuli. Research has shown that adolescents have an exaggerated response um, in, in their nucleus accumbens to things that they find valuable or rewarding. So if you give a child a minty and say, here, well done, have a minty, a child's nucleus accumbens will light up on an MRI, you'll see it activate. And it's the brain saying, I've been rewarded. I find that um, pleasurable. I'll give myself dopamine. And it's the same with an adult. If you give an adult a minty, say, well done, here, have a minty. Nucleus accumbens, light up. Oh, I've been rewarded. I find that pleasurable. I'll give myself some dopamine. In adolescence, the response is different. It's exaggerated. If you give an adolescent something they value, their nucleus accumbens lights up and it like blows the charts with an exaggerated response to reward stimuli, which tells us something really, really valuable about motivating and moderating adolescent They are reward-driven. Really powerful information. My eight-year-old two-year-old, Rupert, is reward-driven. He's a very smart dog. He's been through two years of obedience training and knows a fair amount of tricks. Sometimes when I'm down the pub, I want to show off with the tricks that he can do, normally after I've had a couple of beers. And he's not interested. There's a lot of distractions, a lot of other people to meet, some of the other dogs at the pub, butts to, to sniff, things to carry. But if I pick up a bit of hot chip, he becomes instantly focused. He plants his butt right in front of me, locks eye contact, little tail starts to quiver. He cannot wait to be given a command so that he can do the trick to earn the chip because he is reward driven 
and hot chips are his reward currency. So knowing that adolescents are reward-driven, the key to motivating their behaviour using this method is knowing what their hot chip is. And the research tells us that it is short-term, extrinsic rewards and peer status. So extrinsic rewards means it comes from outside of them, not intrinsic, which is internal, self-discipline. Very different to adult learning. Adult learning is predicated on life experience, mutual respect, and self-discipline, self-motivation, intrinsic motivation. That's adult learning. Adolescence, extrinsic motivation. If you want me to do that, what are you going to give me? What do I get? Uh, and peer status. So I get back to this point again. Rewarding the behaviour you want to see is much more powerful than punishing the behaviour you don't want to see with adolescents when it comes to behaviour modification. Because remember, they don't consider consequence often when they're living in the moment. So if you want to moderate their behaviour, find the things they're doing that you like and continue to reward it, reward it, reward it. And that will then replicate and you will get more of it. Um, elevate their peer status. Oh, we know this as a society. We've learnt this. It's everywhere. You know, whether it's happy stamps on homework, uh, whether it's the badges that we give to Cubs and Scouts, the coloured belts of martial arts, we know that these things, these trappings of peer status, are, are motivating to this young audience. Napoleon Bonaparte said, soldiers will fight long and hard for a piece of coloured ribbon. He is the architect of the contemporary honours and awards system, which we still have today. He knew this. Um, give praise often. Like, extrinsic motivation doesn't mean it has to be physically something that you give them. It can just be praise. Public praise. Well done. Good job. We're not handing out VCs. Turn poor performance into an opportunity for positive reinforcement through the application of a roadmap to recovery. So what does this mean? When someone does something wrong, they need to be held to account. So we normally associate that with, with taking something off them. Maybe it's pay, maybe it's privileges, maybe it's leave, it might be responsibility. We take it away. You've been held to account. Now, if that never comes back, and that's what's most motivational to them, where's the impost for them to change? You know, so when I went through Dun Through, if you as a, you know, as a as a cadet holding a position of responsibility within the Corps of Staff Cadets were charged, you were stripped of your rank. And it, you never got it back. Why? Because you're being held to account right up until the point you commission and get made an officer. Um, but if that rank, short-term, extrinsic and linked to peer status, is the most motivational thing that can be used to train you, why wouldn't we progressively give it back in demonstrations of the right behaviours? So a roadmap to recovery says, I'm taking something away, you're being held to account. I will give it back when you achieve waypoints along the roadmap. And each one of those waypoints is an opportunity for positive reinforcement. Uh, had a friend who had a problem with her daughter. Her daughter had done something wrong and she said, I've taken her mobile phone off her. 
for a month. I thought, oh, I bet you she hates you. Yep, that's what she said. And I, are you trying to punish her or are you trying to change her behaviour? Because at the moment you're punishing her. And while you're punishing her, she's learning. And what she's learning is, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. When she goes home, gets home of an evening and she wants to be looking at funny cat videos and she can't, her brain is thinking, I hate you. And when she goes to school in the morning and all her friends are talking about the funny cat videos they were looking at the night before, she's thinking, I hate you. And when the brain learns something, it's not like an ethereal cloud of stuff floating in an empty skull. When the brain learns something new, it creates a new physical pathway, a new neural pathway. So people who have learnt to play the violin have a tight-knit cluster of neurons and axons associated with left-hand dexterity in their brain that the rest of us don't have. Their brain has physically changed shape in response to the learning that they have done, learning to play the violin. And at the moment, my friend's daughter was learning for 30 days. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and laying down neural pathways. After 30 days when the phone goes back, those neural pathways don't evaporate and they become predictive of future behaviour. So the next time that daughter is given a scenario where she has to think, how do I feel about mum? That's right, I've got a neural highway associated with hate mum. And the, the alternate is the roadmap to recovery, where you say, I'm taking your phone off you, you can have it back when you do the following good things on your roadmap to recovery. You can walk your, daughter, your sister home from ballet class every night this week. And when they achieve one of those waypoints, it comes in through the door, look at your sister. Your sister is skipping through the house with joy about the fact that she's just spent 30 minutes walking home from you and spending time with you after school. That's got to make you feel pretty good. And the daughter is now, the new girl's come and going, oh, I've just been rewarded. I find that pleasurable. I'm going to give myself some dopamine. And dopamine is addictive. Like dopamine is the hormone that underpins all addiction. So whether it's addiction to cigarettes, whether it's addiction to gambling, whether it's addiction to video games, all of these things are structured to give you a hit of dopamine and get you addicted. So if you, you create this roadmap to recovery and multiple waypoints, each one of those things is an opportunity to change the behaviour uh, and addict that adolescent to good behaviour. I want more dopamine, how do I do it? I, get, I do good things. The next part of the brain you need to understand is the ventral striata. It's another part of the brain's reward mechanism and it rewards adolescents with dopamine for participating in novel activity in the presence of their peers. So what is novel to an adolescent? If you think we raise children to be kind, nice and polite, what's novel is not that. All right? That driving, drinking, sex, drugs, uh, risky and unacceptable behaviour, all of these things are novel to adolescents. And in the presence of their peers, they will get a hit, a massive hit of dopamine for doing these things. 
It's not new. This is not a Y generation, millennial or Z generation thing. It has always been this way. So what? Adolescence in a group is a high risk environment. They did a research in the United States where they had adults and adolescents hooked up to brain scan technology while they were driving uh, a simulator, a car simulator. They were told that the safer they drove, the more points they'd get. The more points they get, the larger their cash reward would be at the end of the experiment. The adults and the adolescents performed this experiment largely to the same standard. Then they were told that the video camera in the corner of the room was broadcasting what they were doing to a room full of their peers. The moment the adolescents were told they were being watched, this ventral striatum activated, it lit up on the MRI. And the moment the ventral striatum activated, their behaviour changed. They started accelerating through caution lights instead of stopping them. They started drifting their simulated car around corners. The whole time they were shedding their points and their cash reward. But that is not what their ventral striatum valued. Their ventral striatum valued novel activity in the presence of their peers. So what does that mean for us? Would I let the ADFA rugby club have their end of year function without a supervising officer? No. They will burn it to the ground. I know. And what does it mean for us as an organisation and for us as leaders? You know, we know uh, at the moment, you know, up to in some units, 50% of the senior NCOs are vacant, either because of critical trades or, you know, long service leave, maternity leave, whatever it happens to be, uh, doing courses. So the supervisory mechanism that's there to keep our young people out of trouble is absent. So what does it mean for us, leadership, and what does it mean for accountability? Maturity, oh sorry, education, again, by itself is not enough to change or moderate unacceptable behaviour because of this activation of the ventral striata. So it just sitting them in a room and saying, you know, these are defence's values and this is what you're meant to do, it's not going to work because these environmental conditions that they don't necessarily have control over increase the likelihood of them making really bad decisions. So we as leaders need to look at that and think about how we control the environment and diminish the risk of them doing something stupid to themselves or stupid to someone else. Uh, you can't teach myelination. Now, in this lesson, I'm going to teach you how to be 40 years of age. By the end of this lesson, you'll be making much better decisions. It doesn't work that way. It's a biological process that they need to go through. And, you know, I often hear when I give this presentation, people say, but sir, you know, eventually we've got to take hands off, you know, and see what they'll do. It's like, yeah, the ad for rugby club will burn the QT to the ground, you know. You, you can teach a 10-year-old how to bench press 80 kilos, but they lack the muscle mass to do it. You can teach an adolescent rules and expected behaviours, but they lack the brain wiring to do it. In fact, it's the opposite. Their brains are actually wired for misadventure. Um, you need to supervise them, mentor them, guide them to protect them from themselves and each other. Find the things they're doing wrong so you can fault correct them, not punish them. Now, there's a, there's a place for punishment. 
Uh, when someone has demonstrated they can't be taught, they're not prepared to learn, they make the same mistake over and over and over again, it's time to try a new strategy and punish them. But, you know, making mistakes is a part of the learning process. They need boundaries, the boundaries need to be policed. Don't trust their venture striata. So, healthy brains need healthy bodies. Uh, aerobic fitness increases the rate of oxygenated blood to the brain, which increases the rate of neurogenesis, production of new brain cells, which creates greater cognitive ability. Uh, exercise helps with the release of serotonin, dopamine and noradrenaline, which are all hormones associated with mental health and resilience. A lack of physical fitness increases the likelihood of depression. Um, adolescents need more sleep than adults. So on average, they need nine hours and 15 minutes in comparison to the eight hours that adults need. And their brains are not ready to wake up until eight or nine o'clock in the morning. So what does that mean? When we realised this at ADFA, so why do we get up early in the morning? It's, it's kind of a bit of a tradition in the military. We get up at O dark 100, um, we need to prepare for stand two, and you know, maybe the Zulus will attack. But at ADFA, we didn't have many Zulus. We did have you know, 1,200 adolescents trying to do difficult cognitive process associated with university degrees. So we thought, if their brains need more sleep, let's give it to them. So we turned Rebelli from 0600 to 0700 to give them an extra hour of sleep. And you know, we try not to program high cognitive load activities early in the morning. Rehab needs to focus on more than just the site of the injury. So we realised this early on too, that people who had done a ligament in their ankle, all the rehab focused on the ligament in the ankle, rebuilding it, you know, building its strength, at the expense sometimes of the aerobic fitness. And then we would find these people who are on long periods of rehab falling into um, you know, a situation of, of depression. And you know, in part, that's because they're not training with their friends, they feel isolated, but it's also the lack of aerobic fitness and the release of all those feel-good hormones that come with it, serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline. So we ensured that rehab programs had as much aerobic fitness in them as possible. You know, even if someone's in a full body cast, you get those fingertips you know, moving as fast as you can, as long as you can, get that heart rate up. This is a bit more now on the educational psychology than the neuroscience, uh, and it's about motivation. So learning requires effort, and motivation is the fuel to learn. There's been a lot of research that draws a link between feeling like you're in a supportive environment, valuing the message, and having a high expectation of success that leads to motivation. So this table I've recreated out of a book uh, on um, how learning works, seven research-based principles for smart teaching. And it shows the interrelationship of supportive environments, high, uh, valuing the message and high expectation of success that leads to motivated learners. I think in my experience, this graph describes motivation in most environments, including leadership. So if you create, you know, you're trying to teach something to someone that they don't value. If someone was to say to me, look, I'll give a different example actually. So it's a brat. 
It's very beneficial for the army if you could run a sub eight minute VFO. Go, okay, I see the value in that and how that would be good for the army. But at my age, 48, with these short legs, my expectation of success on that is very low. So even though I might be in a supportive environment um, and I might value what is being told, my expectation of success is low. I'm gonna feel fragile. So when we realised this at ADPA, there's a, there's a, out of grey review, referred to a lack of wanting to cross the road. The trainees referred to the instructors as jailers in a penal institution. Now, that we existed to catch them and punish them. Rather, that doesn't sound like a supportive environment. So how do we change? How do we change the mindset? When I was at ADPA as a CO, we removed the direct chain of command from the discipline process. So if you were going to be charged, you would get charged by a different OC, so that your own OC and your own DO could continue to provide you with a supportive environment. Now it's very important in the context of the DFDA that we can hold our people to account on operations. So when you're deployed, you know, later on, it's important that an OC can charge, you know, soldiers for, you know, NDs or whatever it happens to be. But in the context of a training establishment, we are dealing with an adolescent workforce. You've got to maintain that perception uh, of a supportive environment. So we did that uh, by removing the chain of command from the direct discipline process and kept the chain of command focused on retraining rather than discipline. Uh, you need to give the reason for learning real meaning and real meaning for a self-centred, slightly selfish adolescent who lacks empathy. Um, and you need to set realistic goals. Yeah, there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a uh, thing creeping in to defence and society at large about setting stretch targets. Oh, it's just a stretch target to motivate them. Well, in the military, everything that leaves our mouth as a leader is a lawful general order and people feel like they are being judged on their ability to perform against that expectation. We really, this idea of a stretch target is not part of our culture. Um, so it is potentially damaging because it creates a threat, creates anxiety. I can't do that, I can't get there, not with the resources I have available. I'm gonna be held to account for this when I don't achieve it it creates huge amounts of anxiety. Uh, in, this is about bias. Uh, there's, you know, from my research, I've identified there's about 200 different forms of bias that influence our decision making. Um, incorrect knowledge is a major barrier to new and correct knowledge. And it is, um, it is hard to change. If you've been told your whole life the world is flat, it is flat, and if you sail too far in a given direction, you're gonna fall off the end of the earth. When someone else turns up and says, oh, when I stand on top of a mountain, I look to the horizon, I think I can see a curve. The sun's round, the moon's round, they go down on one side, they come up on the other. I'm gonna hypothesize that the world is round. No, you are wrong, and you're gonna be burnt at the stake. All right? Very hard to change people's perceptions of what they know to be true. 
and a lot of what people know to be true about the military is wrong because it comes from a Hollywood stereotype that we can't control. We can't write that narrative. Or it comes from older friends and older family members who served in the military in a different period, in a different time, with different culture uh, and expected values. Like, you know, Hollywood stereotypes, you've got to respect the rank, but not the person. Who's, who's heard that in their career? Yeah, what, straight out of Band of Brothers? Respect is one of our core values. If you walk into my office and I've not met you before, I give you respect. I give it to you as a human, not to the rank you wear. That's a piece of cotton that was made in China. You know, I give it to you. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. I respect you as a human. I respect you as a fellow member of the Defence Force. I respect you as someone who has signed a blank cheque unlimited liability up and to, including your life in the defence of the nation. I give you that respect as a gift. It's yours to lose through your actions. Trust is different. If you walk into my office and expect me to trust you and I've never met you before and ask me for 50 bucks, I'm not going to give it to you. Trust has to be earned. Trust is earned through demonstrated performance over variable conditions. But respect should be given freely. Uh, the purpose of military training is to weed out the weak you know, that full metal jacket approach of, of, and a gatekeeper of you're not good enough to be in my army. Right? I've seen this. I've seen, it. I've seen multiple instructors like this. And when I was at ADFA, one of the things I used to do was a trainee validation. You know, they'd do a survey monkey forum every six months, um, each year level, and I'd do an open forum discussion with the trainees each year level every six months based on what I'd heard out of their surveys and give them answers back. And what I heard over and over and over again from a certain audience was that ADFA's too soft. The purpose of military training is to weed out the weak. Um, and that was coming predominantly from army. Predominantly based on a physical perception of strength and weakness. Uh, and as I would say to them, you know, there are people in the audience who are very strong, you know, can lift heavy things, carry it on their back over large distances at good speed, and are prepared to run towards the enemy, not surrounded in an armoured vehicle. You know, those people are destined for the infantry, and it's great, but they are potentially sitting beside someone in the audience who has a brain the size of a planet, who is smart enough to fix the avionics on a Joint Strike Fighter. And in terms of strength or weakness, and relative value based on the rarity of the commodity, the person with the big brain is much more valuable to defence and we really don't care how many push-ups they can do. So it's important to get that message. This is about, yes? We're in agreement. I said the purpose of military training, not the expectation of military training. 
for the purpose of military training, we recruit to capability requirements. So we say in order to fill the defence force, we need this many people. Those people come in, as you say, not all of them pass, but the ones that don't pass equal capability deficiency out the other end of the sausage factory. Yeah, and then we need to push in more fresh meat to try and fill that gap. But the purpose of military training is to try and get everybody to pass. Some people need more effort than others. Some people need more effort in different areas. And some people, as you rightly identify, won't get there. That doesn't mean we lower the standard. Oh, well, we might, but it might be relating to a capability requirement. So there's no point in setting a standard that's this high and having no one able to meet it and no capability at the other end. So th there is sometimes we actually have to say, to get what we need, we are going to reduce the standard. You know, and let's say, where, where do we draw the line? Is it, you know, seven minute abs or five minute abs? Could we say six minute abs in the middle? You know, like it, we, we create a time for a BFA that says, that's the pass mark. If whatever is coming out of society is just not getting to that standard, and we can train them once we get them, we go, you know what, if we drop it by 10 seconds, how many extra people do we get? Does that fill our entry requirement? Well, drop it by 10 seconds, and then let's put them through a really good PT program that brings them up to the standard that we need. So I, I think we're in agreement. I'm, you've taken the comment a maybe a little bit more literally than it needed to be, and I understand, but yeah, it was not the intent of the statement. Um, so to get them to live defence's values, uh, you've got to address that factually incorrect information. So one of the things that we did at ADFA is we would play, um, you know, some of these Hollywood stereotype videos, the blanket bashing scene out of Full Metal Jacket. And, and some of these kids have never seen that movie, most of them, in fact, and it's confronting. And you say, well, rewrite that script. Rewrite that script to be a demonstration of what ADF values actually is. Now, in the process of doing that, they're mentally rehearsing it. You're actually laying, despite the fact they've never experienced that situation, they are now describing it, they're writing it, they're laying down neural pathways. It is like a rehearsal and a rock drill of expected behaviour. So when they get to a scenario uh, that they might not have experienced before, where someone says, you know, well, let's put our blocks of soap into a sock and belt this kid for letting down the section all the time, that despite the fact that they've never experienced that situation before, they've worked through the process and they've got some neural pathways associated with it. Um, we need to highlight, you know, army values diversity. I made this point. And, um, and remind them that everybody has strengths and limitations. The job of a leader is to find and harness the strength in your subordinates, not target their weakness. Predators target weakness. Now, I know after 31 years in the army what my weaknesses are. I know what my limitations are. And they're the same ones that have been highlighted since I was a lieutenant. Attention to detail is not one of my strengths. And all of my early reports said, you need to work on this, you need to work on it, you need to work. The amount of effort it would take for me to work on something I'm not good at would be not worth the benefit or the outcome that I would get. Why don't I just play to my strengths? 
and I can offset my limitations by finding someone who's really good at attention to detail. And go, if I'm an OC and I'm, I'm good at sort of big ideas, good thinking, you know, concepts, but I'm not good at attention to detail, well, I need a 2IC who is. I need to combat team at a personnel level and offset my limitations with someone else's strength. I said, well, you guys did a personality assessment yesterday about understanding where you are and how other people are different. Think about that in terms of how you play to your strengths. Know yourself, know others. You know, the amount of effort you go into working on your weakness, just accept your weakness and offset it with someone else's strength. Um, all of that, everything that I've just talked about and the research behind it, I've boiled down into a bunch of adolescent learning factors. So these are research-based and peer-reviewed. So they're just, they're like statements of scientific fact. And if you accept those factors on the right-hand side, you can use them as the basis to create your own adolescent learning or leadership strategies. And for contrast, I've put them beside the adult learning um, factors that were first put forward by Knowles in 1980. So this is about contrast. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong, they're both right. But it's about knowing your audience. It's about knowing your subordinates and giving you additional tools now to say, what am I dealing with? Am I dealing with an adult or an adolescent? How might I change my leadership style to optimise what I get out of this person? Um, I'll take questions now. If any of you ever want to see this presentation again or you want to um, share it with other people, there's a link to the video on the Cove um, and based on that camera, I think there's going to be another one shortly. So, questions, yes. organisation going forward? I know two years is a pretty short time when you're talking about organisational change, but what did you see from that? So I was very fortunate I had three years. So throughout the time that we were implementing this and validating it, we, sh we saw a statistically significant improvement in their motivation, a statistically significant improvement in their satisfaction, a statistically significant improvement in their military results, and a statistically significant decrease in unacceptable behaviour that was so significant, our two staff said, what's going on, have you stopped charging them? So the way I describe it really simply is when we treated them like adults, which was the recommendation of the Gray Review uh, and the Kafer Review, you know, making the best recommendations they could on the science that they had available at that time, they said, you know, training to be an officer is very important, very responsible, you need to treat them like adults. They used the freedom associated with being treated like adults to behave like children. And because they behaved like children, we came down on them like a ton of bricks, removed all their freedom, and they said, you're treating us like kids. It's like, no, we treated you like adults, you behaved like kids, this is the response. When we started treating them like adolescents, guiding them, mentoring them, uh, finding out what they were doing wrong so we could fault correct instead of punish, their behaviour improved. 
and because their behaviour improved, they got more freedoms. And they said, finally, you're treating us like adults. It's like, no, we're treating you like adolescents. You're just behaving like adults. And you had a second question. Aimed towards the instructors. Now, we've spoken about neural pathways and you know, with the instructors that you'd likely had, their neural pathways are well and truly set from long-term long military experience. So what strategies did you implement outside of the discipline uh, architecture you created um, to manage their change? And how did you deal with the frictions of change that you probably had within that organisation with the instructors? Yep. So what, what I have found in presenting this, giving this presentation all over defence now uh, for about 10 years is that we, defence is full of really smart people who are evidence-based when it comes to their decision-making. So when you can describe this uh, in, I heard this term yesterday, and I'm going to continue to use it, pracademics. You know, you go, here is the research, here is the science, and here is how it equates into the so what of practical application. People get it. You know, like, there's a significant number of the people in this audience that have got adolescent kids. You know, and all of them are going, oh, they're stuffed when I get home. I know how to apply the tenets of manoeuvre theory to completely turn them inside out. So I, I, I didn't have a problem. Uh, there are a few. There are a few who were fixed in their ways to not, oh, I don't, you know, not supportive, don't get it, there's nothing wrong with the way we've been doing business. Okay. The best way to deal with that is through a selection process. And one of the best things that we got out of the Broderick Review for ADFA was the opportunity for the Commandant uh, to select staff and veto those that were deemed inappropriate for that, the, the environment that they're trying to um, maintain. Yep. Hey, g'day, sir. Uh, the most, uh, sorry, the majority of my junior leaders uh, on operations have been and will continue to be under the age of 25. How do we train prefrontal cortex response uh, when you can't remove the threat, okay, on operations? Yep, 100%. So what we, so what that, that amygdala hijack is in response to a threat, which comes from fear. The body's, you know, we heard this yesterday, the body's whole, the brain's whole reason for existing is to keep the body alive so that you can pass on your DNA. So realistic training helps make people familiar with that environment. You've got to do it in a graduated approach though. You've got to keep people in the prefrontal cortex mindset and keep increasing the complexity of what they're dealing with, but only in so far as they still have the cognitive process to deal with it. The moment you step a little bit too far into the hijack realm, people stop learning uh, and start, you know, and, and start, stop performing optimally. So how do we deal with it? We deal with it through, you know, a graduated approach to increasing complexity of training. So by the time people get to operations and have to deal with it for real, say, I'm, you know, there's a threat, but I'm prepared for this. This is not unfamiliar to me. I am comfortable in this environment and I can deal with it. Um, now, additionally, given your, you know, you talked about your junior leaders and their age, now there's, it includes lieutenants um, and probably some captains, depending upon when they join. Uh, there was a really good reason I was given a senior NCO when I was a 19-year-old, oh no, sorry, 21-year-old troop leader. You know, I can't, that's one way we could do it, sir. 
there's another way that will keep us both out of jail. You know, so even though I was responsible and accountable and I was the officer, um, I was given his wisdom uh, and fully myelinated prefrontal cortex to help me with my decision making. Hey, sir, um, having lived the dream as one of those reprobate cadets and then um, Karma coming back as an instructor at ADFA, we had a lot of fear amongst the staff that we weren't setting them up for success in terms of testing. I know, and thank you for that question, Holly, because it was along the lines in terms of it's that graduated introduction. But as an OC, I find myself really cautious and scared that I am not having that time to actually do that mentoring and providing that top cover because of the 20 million corporate governance like everyone knows here. So I guess in terms of as strategies going forward, how do we actually provide them that top cover and that mentoring whilst also recognising that they are in charge of people and we know they're going to make those selfish decisions, but how do we protect our soldiers, lieutenants so in particular? This, this is the paradox of control. Um, and the response to the senior corporal has been tactical policy. All right, so every time something goes wrong, we bring in a rule, a governance, a something to try and change that, to control what's happening at that level and make sure it doesn't happen again. Herein lies the paradox. All of those controls are rules. Um, you know, we've been doing some work mapping all the tier one um, tasks that need to be done across the six technical streams of governance, and it, I think it's up around 2,700 tasks expected to be done at a subunit and unit level before getting to tier two. But all th that's more work than can be done. And then you put that into a preparedness management, you know, where, where you're trying to get ready for act your actual job, and you start dealing with all the personal issues, fact findings and everything else that go on, which are all control, right? So all of those things are about controls and trying to control people's behaviour and the outcomes. All of those controls increase the threat, puts people into that amygdala space, um, you know, and, and we heard yesterday from the neuroscientists about the, um, the increase of cortisol and the, and the impacts on cognitive ability when you're stressed. So this is the paradox of control. 
By creating all those controls, you increase the stress and you increase the likelihood of people making bad decisions. So how do we deal with it? But we need to first accept it. There are more things to be done than we can do. How do we manage that with our command philosophy of directive control? Where we only have limited resources. We need to look at it, we need to prioritise it in terms of what's most important. We need to focus on that and the other stuff we need to risk manage. Treat, tolerate, terminate, transfer, up to your boss. I can only do this much. I'm, I, this is where I'm accepting risk and I'm now transferring that risk to you. And as leaders, we need to accept that that's our job. That is our responsibility. Because um, we need to uh, diminish this control paradox which is leading to the increased likelihood of people making bad decisions. Uh, yes, uh, so, so um, this has been a really great presentation, especially, you know, with discussion, that term mentorship, which is something, you know, a lot of uh, senior NCOs are finding new. One of the threats that we keep talking about with our young soldiers and our deck commanders is failure. Um, and especially, you know, with our exercises never designed to, to allow them to fail because then that way it, it educates them that, hey, it's all right, then we start to mentor to build them up. But I guess the question is, is that at this stage in my career, um, been 20 years, I haven't actually formally seen anywhere where we are actually taught how do we be a good mentor. It's something that, you know, we have to learn individually over our career. So where do you see that education, um, and besides your presentation, that should sit in our career and professional development? Right at the beginning. As soon as we are about to step into our first position as a leader, we should understand the difference between coaching and mentorship. And management, there are three different approaches that you can have to someone who's not performing well. Do you think about when someone's failing on the range and not shooting well, what do we do? Coach. How to describe that coach? What is that, how is that coach's demeanour? Calm and relaxed. That coach is not standing over the top of them going, shoot better. It's just there, mate, the target. It's not hard. Righto. So we have, we've recently been doing some research on, um, on admin sanctions in Army and in Forces Command. Guess what the highest number of our admin sanctions is for? What type of behaviour? Anyone want to? No. Nope. BFA. BFA failures. So 300 in Forces Command. When someone fails a BFA, what do we do? Say again. 30 day warning. So when someone's struggling with shooting, we give them a coach. When someone's struggling with a BFA, we put them on a warning. Now if I was to suggest you, because and this is something I've seen at ADFA, that a significant number of the people who are failing BFAs are doing it out of fear of failure. So it's a, psycho a psychological problem. It's because they, are, they value what they need to do so much, good values, that they don't want to fail so much that they panic about it for 24 hours prior to the BFA 
burning adrenaline. And by the time they get to the start line, they're already exhausted. You know, and our response to it is not to give them a coach, it's to put them on a warning. Now, there are some people who need to eat less and run more, um, but there are, you know, there are a whole, you know, based on the data uh, and based on my experience at ADFA, there are a significant number of them that benefit from a calm, supportive coach. So when do I think we need to do it? Early, like part of our subject courses. We should be teaching people how to be a coach, how to be a mentor, and when each of those different approaches is appropriate. Oh, yes. Hi, sir. Uh, you are talking about your roadmap to recovery and rewarding people with steps along the way towards the behaviour that you want to see. So do you actually advocate having a predefined set of achievements that you want a person to achieve and make them aware of that, or do you tend to reward them as you see them, the good behaviour progressing along? No, no, so it's, it's situational. So the type of thing that you will pick to be those waypoints is going to be based on the situation. We have the system for this already. It's called retraining. Right, eh? So you identify the deficiency. So like, what are the demonstrations of things that I want to see to get... And you don't, you don't just wait till they demonstrate it. You need to get them in and say, right, I am holding you to account. This is what I've taken away from you. I am going to give it back, maybe not all the way, but you know, partial recovery um, by you demonstrating the following things to me. And then you tell them what they are, when those things are going to be reviewed along the way. Because you need to make it a formal process. You need to formalise that feedback too. So they have in their mind, they know what their target is. They're heading toward it. And you know, it's got to be, when I go back to, it's got to be something that they value. It's got to be something that they feel like they're in a supportive environment, and it's got to be something that they have a reasonable expectation of success. You know, if you set those things up as the waypoint, um, you know, you're on the roadmap for recovery. Yep. Yes. You advocated having strong boundaries. Yep. Do you enforce those by punishment or by reinforcement and learning, or a combination? No, no. So I'm, you know, like punishment. I think is a is a thing that is only done after you've tried all the other opportunities to learn. As we heard, we need to create a safe place, a safe environment for people to, to fail in order to learn comfortably on certain things. There are some things that are zero fail. We all know what they are. You know? um, so what do I advocate for? I advocate for having boundaries and policing the boundaries in order to protect them from themselves and each other. So don't give them so much rope that they can get into trouble. You know, you sit there with them going, okay, I'm gonna stop you right there. What you now need to do is change this behavior. You know, I'm, I'm pulling you up short and putting you in the right direction. So, and you know, it's more about identifying what they're doing wrong so you can fault correct, not so you can punish. Yes. I think um, the education system prior to them joining Defence is going to support us as they implement more Carol Dweck's uh, growth and fixed mindset type stuff in schooling. Um, but I wanted to ask, do you think there are friction points in the way that DFR recruit people? Like you were talking about the Hollywood mentality, but if you look at all the videos and all the advertising, we see abseiling, we see the guy in the ghillie suit, we see explosions, we see guys with helmets carrying people off, we see those, those image, that image kind of imagery. 
um, and then we get them in here and then you kind of have to do that re-education all over again. So the expectation gap of why they join versus now what they're experiencing, whether it be at ADFA through RMC or through Kapuka, yeah. there's a disconnect there. Um, and the second component to that is, um, is there more opportunity then to actually target an older demographic, um, to try to target the intellectual edge uh, rather than look at that sort of physical bias, trying to get the, the youth in. Yeah. So I think, you know, with the research that we have done in terms of meeting our capability requirements, if we don't recruit young people when they're straight out of school, the evidence is they go and start another career, they meet someone, they get married, they have kids, and they're on a whole other pathway. So to meet our capability expectations, we do need to get young people um, and we need to understand that in doing that, we accept some risk. We also uh, get a great deal of strength because we get people who are reward driven, which makes them relatively easy to train if we tap into that right process. Going back to the imagery that we have in recruiting, that appeals to young people. I think we should double down on it. You know? Short term, extrinsic and peer status. You know, all those things of, you know, helmets and jumping out of planes and running, you know, firing machine guns and you know, tearing across the range in a tank. That appealed to me when I was that age. That's why I joined the army. Um, and it is ultimately why we exist. You know, we exist to you know, provide lethal options to government in the you know, prosecution of their ends. Um, so all the other stuff that we do is, you know, is because we can do that other stuff, it makes us good at doing humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. But that is secondary to our primary role. We're the only organisation in Australia who can, you know, who can lawfully prosecute lethal action against other people. So when you look at it in that context, it, that's not what we need to change. That's not the message. That's why we exist. But it's how we do that. It's how we train along the way and how we treat each other is the bit that we need to correct. Yes? Wait, wait. Oh. If you can grab me before you ask the question, that would be good. So, uh, great talk. Um, now, on the flip side, uh, when you're working with a mature unit or organisation where their, their neural pathways are, I assume, already set, you know, set in their ways, have you got some strategies where, you know, to change that? Yeah, so the, the beauty of the brain, and this is what we heard yesterday, I'm talking about its process of maturity, and that's where I've focused my training on. But as you heard from the professor yesterday, the brain is neuroplastic, which means it can change. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Um, how do you do that? Well, you've got to be convincing. You know, that's, you, you know and there are, there are lots of different people. I can't tell you how to do that to everyone because everybody's different. That's what, you know, and this is what makes this difficult, right? That chip, you know, that chip of, hot chip of motivation is different for every single person. The kid sitting at the front of the class who gets A's on their homework, you know, their hot chip is that A. Miss, miss, I only got an A minus. Um, the kid at the back of the class who's making jokes um, and getting laughs out of his mates, he is doing exactly the same thing. Short term, extrinsic motivation and peer status. It's just a different manifestation of those things. So 
That's what makes this hard, is there is no silver bullet. I can't give you the answer. You know, I can give you the knowledge and the factors, and it's then about how you use that in the art of leadership to understand, know your people, know yourself, and use these factors to try and come up with the best way to optimise the outcomes uh, for your organisation and your people. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. More of a comment, but I'd be interested in your, your thoughts. Based on everything we've spoken about today, I think it's worth highlighting, I guess, my current status on this is that a lot of the things you've spoken about, the amygdala hijack, the pursuit of aggressiveness, the um, social influences of other adolescents, et cetera, et cetera, are incredibly beneficial in this adolescent age group for things like infantry combat. Yes. And it's our responsibility as the more mature adults to know that and make sure we guide them correctly. So, you know, just, just to bring it back onto, I guess, like a wartime combat focus, not training, um, a lot of these traits, I think, are incredibly beneficial for what we want, particularly in like a close combat sphere. I agree with you 100%. Um, it's, uh, there's a Schwartz theory of values um, that puts values into clusters and says that you know, when you get certain things, they come with byproducts and you just can't separate that. So if you, fo if you focus on discipline, conformity, teamwork, um, you get uh, my, uh, um, monoculture as an outcome. It, it just happens. When you focus on the team, teams are competitive. Teams want to beat other teams. So it doesn't matter whether your team is a section a platoon, a company, or a battalion, the moment you put a team framework around it, they want to beat the other team um, because it comes as a, as a job lot. If you focus on discipline and conformity, you can't have innovation and creativity. They don't exist in the same space. Um, and this Schwartz theory of value sort of maps these things all over the place. Now, when you look at defence values, and what we say we value as an organisation, they're right in the middle, centre of scene mass of the Schwartz theory of all the values, which is a really good place to be, because um, it's measured, it's not extremes. Uh, but it's different, you know? So when you look at it like that, you go, what we train for when you first get to Kapuka is not the kind of defence values when you look at where they're mapped on the Schwartz theory but we get what we train. So it's then when do we, how do we merge? How do we, uh, how do we evolve through that process to get to that healthy middle ground? Because you know, as a, as a lieutenant, you know, if someone tells you hold the right flank, they don't want you know, a, lot, a great deal of creativity or innovation. They just want you to dig your pits in, sight your machine guns and hold the right flank. But when you get to be, you know, a, a colonel in army headquarters, they very much want you to be creative and come up with, you know, solutions to accelerated warfare. Um, so it, it's about finding that balance and understanding what we need at that stage. And, and you're exactly right. What you just highlighted of what you need in an infantry battalion is spot on. Uh, we need to be aware of the byproducts that come with that uh, and be conscious of managing them. And that, that's, that gets back to this whole thing of know yourself and know others. So what do you 
guess what we've seen in the last 15 years is an accelerated promotion process where we now have junior leaders that are inside this adolescent age group. Yeah, yeah. So when I was a troop leader, my soldiers had done five, at least five years before they were considered for Lance Jack. They were probably around about the seven-year mark before they were a full track. Um, and they were significantly more mature. You know, by the time they were full track, they were, um, on, they were on the cusp, if not just into, their adult mind. And they were very different um, than what we have now. When I was a troop leader, we were all told, you know, the mantra of the army back then was that corporals were the backbone of the army. Uh, and corporals were about 25 years of age, and they were the backbone of the army. Uh, I'm not sure that that remains true, and that's not their fault, it's this accelerated promotion process. And I think the backbone of the army now are sergeants. Um, but there is a lot of pressure on sergeants, a lot of pressure to be doing all the governance stuff, to be doing their promotion courses, you know, and there's pressure on sergeants, you know, and the home front and everywhere else as well. So it's that backbone is taking a lot of the, you know, the heavy lifting at the moment. So um, it, what do I think about it? first part of understanding it is to be aware of it and start looking at it, be conscious of it and the, and the things that might come out of it. Yes? So probably a bit of a broad ranging question and you may not be able to answer it, but noting how much pressure we are under as OCs and SSMs uh, and everything you've spoken about, the need to tailor how we do things depending on who our training uh, I suppose, audience is. Um, what sort of organisations are we putting in place within wider army to assist OCs? Because I know I don't have enough time to do everything I need to do. You spoke about risk, uh, assessing the risk. Is army doing anything to, I suppose, implement mentors to OCs to allow us um, to gain expertise in those training things beyond things like the code? Uh, I was about to say, you've just taken my answer. So I was going to say, the Cove is your best resource to tap in to the things, everything, everything Army can learn and know uh, and try and be agile and adaptive is being loaded into the Cove as a resource for everybody. So I need to have time to read the yep. Cove in order to implement the Cove. The, um, only, the only people who can create time for you are you and your leadership. And it comes back to prioritisation and risk management. That is the only way you will create time. There's no other way, because there's too much. So I can't think of another answer other than do what's most important, risk manage other stuff in order to build the time uh, to you know, try and defeat that control paradox that I spoke about. 